Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Satin Tights, a Wonder Woman podcast. I'm Paul K. Bisson. I'm inserting this introduction here because after our recording session, it was very clear that we could not release it all at once. My co-host, Ray Caspio, myself, and our special guest, Andy Mangles, we talked for over four hours. Now, we didn't plan it that way, but when you have three diehard Wonder Woman fans discussing a 75-minute movie that holds such an important place in our hearts and yours, well, you have to talk about more than just the movie itself. And boy, did we. But instead of cutting a lot of that discussion out, I've decided to keep most of it in and break the podcast into two parts. Now, I warn you that in this first part, we don't even get into the review. It's all origin and backstory. But don't let that discourage you from listening. We've got some surprises in store. So be sure to follow along in our show notes at satintights.com. And now, without any further ado, here is part one of Satin Tights, a Wonder Woman podcast on the new, original Wonder Woman. This is ABC. In this dark winter of 2017, the onslaught of superhero podcasts continues with little focus on the Wonder Woman television series. Their overblown cachet of dark crusaders overshadow this colorful program. While iFanboy, Geek and Sundry, and the Nerdist grasp for their place, one podcast rises above the din. Ray Caspio and Paul K. Bisson gather the allies in defense as these other hosts blunder across the internet. Fankind is being threatened by these monotonous villains. The only hope for a brighter podcast is... It's finally time for the new original Wonder Woman. We're here. Hooray. <laughs> Hooray. We get to talk yes. about the real thing finally. We did our primer, which uh, we didn't talk anything about the show, but it gave all the <laughs> listeners a chance to get to know us, who we are. Yes. Uh, yes. Which I might add is our lowest uh, uh, <laughs> download uh, numbers, because nobody cares about us. Nobody cares. They want to hear about Wonder Woman, and we are here to finally deliver that. That's right. Them. That's right. And yes. our, our, our Kathy Lee Crosby, uh, Who's Afraid of Diana Prince show. Uh, huge numbers, over a thousand downloads uh, in in under a month, uh, and it's only thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, that's that's really fantastic, like crazy, crazy fantastic. Uh, but now we're here. Here is uh, we're going to be talking about the new original uh, Wonder Woman, and with us to talk about the new original Wonder Woman uh, is someone that is going to be contributing to the show on a regular basis uh, behind the scenes. Uh, and his name is Andy Mangles. If you love Wonder Woman and you read about Wonder Woman, uh, you've definitely heard about Andy Mangles. And I'm going to tell you my Andy Mangles story before he comes on here. Um, this was during the dark, depressing days after... Crisis on uh, Infinite Earths, where um. Wonder Woman was hit by the Anti-Monitor and she was de-evolved. Still don't get that. Uh, and she... <laughs> And everything. I don't get a lot of what happens to poor Wonder Woman <laughs> in the comics. But back in 86, uh, Wonder Woman was, for all intents and purposes, she was dead. And then Trina Robbins for uh, issue Legend of Wonder Woman came out. I gobbled that up. And then uh, on the horizon, we started to hear that a new Wonder Woman was being created. And uh, a new, it was going to start at number one. And George Perez was going to, from and, and back then, you knew George Perez from the new Teen Titans with Marv Wolfman. And that he was big, big, big big name and it was just there was this blank dead spot and i was like well i, I need my fix and one day i'm in uh the comic shop it was the red lion smoke shop uh back in salem mass where i got all my comics and uh sitting there smoke shop like they sm 
sold cigars and stuff. Yeah, exactly. It was a smoke and shop comic slash books? comic books. Yeah, exactly. So you could smoke, you know, your Chesterfields. Uh, we are talking about the 1940s Wonder Woman, you know, as as and read your comics at the same time. So uh, it was uh, November. 86, Amazing Heroes, I saw it. It was sitting on the newsstand, the comic book area, and it was this beautiful George Perez Diana in her Wonder Woman garb. And I'm like, oh my God, it was this sort of uh, composite of her full and then her big face. And I grabbed it, opened it, skimmed through it. Now there was the uh, uh, very long uh, sort of a historical look back at Wonder Woman by Carol A. Strickland. Carol. Carol. Hi, Carol, if yeah. you're listening. Hi, Carol. And then I saw, flipping the pages, and I see an interview with Lyle Wagner. I've never read an interview with Lyle Wagner. Then I see an interview with Stanley Ralph Ross. I'd never read an interview with Stanley Ralph Ross. And then I see a retrospective on the TV show. Oh my God, I was not expecting this at all. Now, all of these articles were were written by some guy named Andy Mangles. I'm like, who the hell is this? And I bought the book. I went down to the local pizza shop on uh, Washington Street, got my uh, two slices of pepperoni and my Dr. Pepper, and I got my window seat. This was a very specific day for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it must might've... have really meant something. It might have even started to snow in November, but I can't. It might have happened, but I'm sitting there in the window and I read it cover to cover. I kept it in my bag. I read it over and over again, but I had never read a retrospective of the television show and I'd never read interviews with people part of the television show. So this was to, and then of course, uh, the other uh, item there was the, the whole George Perez interview and the, and the, and the, uh, the preview of the, the George Perez comics. So, that Amazing Heroes 106 was just, it was a treasure trove that I kept with me and read over and over again uh, until until that first issue came out. Uh, anyway, the point is, that writer was Andy Mangles. In 30 years, what can someone like that do? Well, he's done a whole ton of stuff. He's written books, media tie-in novels. He's written hundreds, if not thousands, of pop culture Articles, um, uh, his Wonder Woman interviews and articles are fantastic. And he's still doing it. He just finished Wonder Woman 77 meets the Bionic Woman. It is out now at the time of this recording in trade paperback. It is so amazing. Uh, and by the way, um, I'm in that comic book. Congratulations. I work with Steve Trevor at the IEDC. I, I saw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. You were there. <laughs> I was there. You are there. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Satin Tights, a Wonder Woman podcast, the one, the only, Andy Mangles. Andy! Hey, guys. Welcome. <laughs> Boy, after an introduction like that. <laughs> that's my story. That is, that, and I'm sticking to it. That's my Andy Mangles story. And uh, I've read a lot of your writing. I've heard, I've heard you on a lot of podcast interviews. I don't think I've ever heard how you became a Wonder Woman fan, what it was. Right, right. Uh, first, before that, I do want to say um, that Ray and I actually have a little bit of a history uh, as well, too. Um, Ray's a, uh, an incredible artist. And mm, thank you. And done some artwork for a charity event I used to do called Wonder Woman Day. Oh, right, right. It was... Uh, it was a, a an art auction charity event, and Ray contributed multiple pieces uh, to several years of that event. Yeah. And uh, I think I even bought the second piece, uh, maybe the first piece. Oh, wow. I think it was either the first or the second piece. I remember the skateboard one. I don't remember the others that I did. Yeah, yeah. There was there was some great ones, and uh, and and I was I was so happy when whenever I would get somebody who was turning an art for that art auction, and it was Linda Carter related art. Um, I was so happy when I would get it in, and even you know when Ray's pieces came in, I could tell. Oh, he's a real fan because he got the costume pieces right. <laughs> 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 oh yeah, and, and listen, listen. If anyone doesn't know Andy's stickler for the, the costume of Wonder Woman and how it's depicted and where and when, and I know firsthand that 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 Andy is a no. The, the bracelets aren't right. Those Aries damned bracelets. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so when when Ray turned in a, 
turn in a piece with the skateboard outfit and and he got everything perfect on it i was like oh he's good in my book forever <laughs> oh good thank you i actually think my husband colored that one kevin kevin smith yeah 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 kevin did those so okay so uh so let me jump back to your question then um I've actually tried to, you know, with as good as my memory can be, I've tried to remember what my first exposure to Wonder Woman was. And I believe that it was in ads um, for um, the the theme parks, the, the Palisade Parks theme parks that they were doing in New Jersey at that point. Uh, the DC Comics books of the late 1960s and early 1970s used to have these ads and they would put the head of Superman, Batman, or Wonder Woman um, kind of talking to the reader uh, in the ads. Oh, wow. And, and I believe that's like literally the first time I saw Wonder Woman because when I, when I started looking at comics, she was still in her depowered phase. But in the licensing, she was still the traditional Wonder Woman. So isn't that uh, always the way isn't licensing always like, I don't think we'll ever be rid of, and this is a good thing. I don't think we'll ever be rid of Ross Andrews or, or Jose uh, uh, Garcia Lopez's uh, wonder woman, because it through decades and decades of different artists that we still see his, his wonder woman as well as, you know, Superman and Batman on various licensings. And uh, I, 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 I've often wondered how weird that was that that that, that licensors didn't automatically adopt the current and I, I, I suppose uh, there's a reason for that and if, if it's long lasting uh, like Lopez's stuff then uh, why not right absolutely absolutely so I think that the first Wonder Woman comic that I actually owned or bought on the newsstand was in 1974, June, July, 1974. It was Wonder Woman number 212. And it was one of the trials issues. And on the cover, Wonder Woman's kind of crying and thrusting her hand out. And what Superman saying, please, Wonder Woman, you must come back. The Justice League needs you. And she's like, no, Superman, I can't. It's, <laughs> it's this fun story. And, and it, it hooked me on Wonder Woman. At that point in time, also, ABC had started doing the Super Friends. So there was this combination of seeing Super Friends every Saturday morning on our bad black and white TV, and then seeing the character in color in the comics, very vibrant, red, white, and blue, you know, the the gold lasso, the gold eagle. It was kind of transformative. And she was also very unusual in that she was one of the few women that uh, was holding her own not not just her own title. I didn't know anything about the character uh, significantly at that point. I, but I did know that she had her own title. She wasn't somebody's girlfriend and that she seemed to be fighting crime for something different. And then, of course, as I, uh, as we all do, we find out that Wonder Woman does stand for something a lot different. You know, she's not a character of tragedy. Uh, she's a character who chose her own destiny. She's fighting for love. She's fighting to change people and to uh, make humanity a better, a better, make humanity better. So, you know, as a character, I found her visually appealing, aesthetically appealing, and very much inspiring. I've often said that Wonder Woman kind of, to me, was like the ultimate mother. Well, you didn't just want her to be your best friend. You wanted her to be a family member as well. You wanted her to be around you always to protect you. What was your reaction to seeing uh, the live-action Linda Carter series for the first time? I I must have first learned about it uh, within a month prior to it airing because they didn't promote things, especially a movie of the week, that far in advance. But I do remember that I wanted to see it so badly in color, like the comics, that I did extra chores for two weeks prior to it airing in order that my parents would borrow a giant color television from our neighbors. Wow. So that I could watch the debut of Wonder Woman in color. (laughs) (laughs) Now realize that it in Montana, in the mountains of Montana in November, 1975, that's that's snow time. So when I say I was doing chores, I was shoveling, you know, shoveling the path up the mountain. And I was, <laughs> I was digging goats and cows out of, out of the snow. And, you know, so for two weeks so that I could watch this in color. 
Um, and then, of course, the show opens up and the footage is in black and white. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> For all of five seconds, my whole world collapsed. <laughs> and when you saw Linda Carter leap off the screen, off the page? It was it was amazing. Uh, I, I, I still don't think, you know, as much as I love Christopher Reeve and what he did with Superman and what he was as a person, I don't think that there's ever been a single actor or actress who has personified a character as clearly as Linda Carter did Wonder Woman. She was absolutely note perfect from the start. And well, and for 40 years too. Yeah. There there had been multiple Batmans, multiple Supermen, and there had only really, I mean, really, uh, uh, Kathy Lee Crosby aside, there had only really been one Wonder Woman for 40 years in the, in the minds of every child and adult or whatever. You know, I mean, right now, this is, it's 2017 is the, is, is the beginning of a new era because it's the first time we've had a new Wonder Woman. Right. She really was, she was Wonder Woman all over the world. Still is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Look, so I want to learn more about Andy and I want to find out more of what he's done and more of what he's going to do. And we will have Andy on in our, uh, in our interview segment. We're going to have him as part of our interview as well. So uh, that'll be, yeah, we'll, we'll devote. We'll devote a whole show to finding out more about uh, Andy's uh, evolution from that teenager. Will it be an Iraq file? (laughs) It will be an Iraq file, exactly. But uh, Andy will also be a regular contributor to Satin Tights, uh, largely in the form of uh, the script analysis because uh, I know that Andy has uh, at Fort Knox a, a stack of uh, the Wonder Woman scripts. And what's wonderful, as we'll find out in this show, is the minor differences and the major differences from script to screen. You've got what I've called a treasure trove of, of bits and pieces of history uh, regarding this show. From test screenings and from uh, uh, notes uh, from people in power who had their hands on the pulse of that show. Show and ideas for episodes that never came to pass. Did, uh, didn't you tell me once that Marsha was supposed to return? Yeah, yeah. There's what? A, there's, there's, a, there's a return of Marsha script that they that that was in production at one point. So, oh wow. Do you have that script? I'll tell you more as we go along. Absolutely. All right. So, no. Uh, do you have that script? I want to know. <laughs> I'm not waiting. Stay tuned. <laughs> Wonder Woman will continue in a moment. I'm Chris Cooling, and I do a podcast called Forgotten TV. It's all about TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows, TV pilots, made-for-TV movies. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the regular podcast places, or at the website Forgotten.tv. I'm Chris Cooling, and I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. Let's get into some of the origin aspects of, of this show. Um, and, uh, and let me uh, conclude the story that I brought up in our last podcast about Stanley Ralph Ross's involvement in that. And also, again, find that Amazing Heroes uh, interview that Andy did with Stanley uh, because he uh, recounts a lot of this stuff. As I said before, Doug and Fox, they went to him originally wanting him to cut down the Who's Afraid of Diana Prince, and he did. He did a rewrite of that. He did cut it down. That didn't go. Kramer came back to him and said, hey, we're doing uh, Wonder Woman again, and we want you to write it. Stanley, well, who do you got? Well, we got Kathleen Crosby. Well, no, she's blonde. Kramer was like, I don't care. We're doing it. Stanley says, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Fine, great. We all know what happened to that movie. So when Kathy Lee Crosby's Wonder Woman failed fan-wise, remember, it did not fail uh, numbers-wise. It was a 49 share. ABC, Warner Brothers, they knew they had something in the character, if not in uh, that movie. So... Kramer, once again, turns to Stanley Ralph Ross. It's sort of like the three strikes you're out or third time's the charm. And he says to him, okay, how would you do it? And he was given the opportunity to write the new original Wonder Woman. And what did Stanley Ralph Ross do? That man went right back to the comic book. There are so many elements of her original origin that are in this movie. It's so wonderful. 
And there are elements that he wrote in the script that did not make it into the movie. We're going to talk about those too. It's going to blow your mind. But that's what happened. Stanley Ralph Ross finally got to write his Wonder Woman. And that's the Wonder Woman that so indelibly burned into our minds and imaginations. Now, let's talk about the casting of Lyle Wagner. Again, Amazing Heroes, find it. Read Andy's uh, interview. Stanley Ralph Ross, while designing, writing the character of Steve Trevor, a Lyle Wagner type, he wrote in his notes. In fact, better yet, get Lyle Wagner. Lyle wasn't doing anything at the time. He had left Carol Burnett, and he was looking for projects. And uh, Stanley says, hey, I got something I'm writing with you in mind. And that's what turned out to be Wonder Woman. Stanley Ralph Ross says it was the only time a suggestion for an actor actually paid off and they listened to him, and that was Lyle Wagner. So they hired Lyle Wagner. Now, Andy, I'm not sure. um, I remember from your interview, they hired Lyle first. Correct. And then they tested actresses to test with him. Yep. And certainly Linda was was his choice because uh, she looked the part and she tested well with him. Yeah. He tested with five actresses for the part and um, it came down to two. And I try as I might, I've never been able to find out who the other actress was. Lyle just said that she was far more experienced. I read that one of them was Joanna Cassidy. That may have been who it was, but it was she was a redhead, she was lean, and felt that Linda was was the right person. And and really you look at the two of them on screen together, they didn't have to do much when they showed them walking out of the comic books in the opening credits. Oh yeah, yeah. That's exactly what they looked like they they had done. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. Um now as as we all know, there are tons and tons of photo stills of the Wonder Woman TV show out there. My favorite promotional stills are the ones with Linda Carter and Lyle Wagner and that mist of smoke seeping up from the floor mm-hmm. and the ver- the handful <laughs> the handful of poses that they have standing side by side him giving the salute or her with her bullets and bracelets those are my favorite stills from that show because when i think of wonder woman and i think of that show I think of Linda Carter and Lyle Wagner. I don't just think of Linda Carter. And that's uh, that might deviate from a lot of fans. That first season of Wonder Woman is the best, in my opinion, because of that relationship, because of their... It was them two together always. And the dynamic of Diana Prince, Wonder Woman, and Steve Trevor is just great. And um, I thought specifically in this pilot, too, just re-watching the pilot after... Last time I watched it was right after I saw the movie, Gal Gadot movie. Their relationship is very different in this movie than the rest of the series. They played the romance a lot more. Oh, yeah. It's heavy in this movie. It is. And I wish that would have continued. It really softened. Yeah, there are light flourishes of that later on, like in the last of the $2 bills when when he's sleeping at his desk and she comes in and Mm. sort of ruffles his hair and, and and, and touches his hand. Yeah. That's a rarity. Now, Linda Carter, again, her story is is so well-known because she's she's told it a hundred times. And uh, she was an actress. She had done a few things. She hates cold readings. Uh, and uh, based on a screen test that she did, she was lucky enough, as an actor, she was lucky enough to... Uh, not have to go in and cold read for Wonder Woman. They looked at a piece of footage of her and they said, oh, okay, we like, yeah, bring her in. Bring her in and, and we'll test her. She says weeks went by, but it felt like months to her. And she was down to her last $25. Uh, I Again, I don't know if that's true, but when when we remember low points in our life... It has been in every story she's told. Yes. Right. It's true by legend by now. Yeah, and the thing is, when, you, when you're down and in your luck, when you're down to your last couple of bucks man these things stick in your mind so yeah there's no reason to think it's not true down to her last 25 bucks she's in her apartment she gets a phone call and it's her agent says hello wonder woman and she freaks out and then again again once again go back to andy mangles interview with stanley ralph ross and this is something that i found fascinating uh stanley actually went to meet linda carter and he says in that interview uh with andy mangles that he, he pops up at her apartment and she opens the door and she's got these huge thick bifocal glasses on and she had no makeup on and he was like hi and she's like oh hold on stanley and she gives stanley uh an eight by ten photo of her and says this is what i look like (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and like Stan, like Stan is like, oh, I no no, I know. I, I mean, I've I, I've seen you. I, I know that. But she 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 didn't want to <laughs> make him think that she wasn't who she was, which I thought was hysterical when he relayed that story. And she became Wonder Woman. Became Wonder Woman, and then cemented Wonder Woman in pop culture forever. I dare say that as much as Linda Carter made that show, Charles Fox's music cannot be understated in what we hear in our heads when we think of that show. What he brought to that piece of, of, of history, television history, it's astounding. As you may or may not know, I got a chance to meet Charles Fox at the La La Land CD event, the launch of, this, of the three-disc uh, CD, which you better go out and get it because it's fantastic. Uh, but I got to sit down with him and talk with him. We are going to have him on when his schedule permits. Charlie has said, yes, I'll, uh, I'll glad to do an interview and talk about Wonder Woman. Uh, he, he talks about how he was doing Love American Style. Uh, and Doug Kramer reached out to him and said, I've got this show, Wonder Woman. I really want it to dazzle. I want it to be fun and exciting. Would you Would you write the, the music and the theme? And Charlie said yes. So he got the assignment, and he's writing the theme, and Doug Kramer gives him a call, calls him at home, picks up the phone. Charlie's at the piano, and Doug says, hey, can I hear it? Can I hear what, what you got? And Charlie says, well, sure, I'll play it for you. But he hears over the phone that Doug Kramer's at a party. It's this loud music in the background, lots of people talking. And he's like, are you going to hear this? Uh, you want to go to someplace quiet? Doug Kramer's like, no, 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 just play it. So Charlie Fox starts playing the Wonder Woman theme on the piano. <laughs> Kramer says, I love it. He says, I don't know how he could have heard it, but he says he loved it. And that's what made it in. And of course, uh, Charles Fox, longtime uh, collaborator, Norman Gimbel wrote the lyrics uh, to the Wonder Woman theme song. And uh, as much as Linda Carter uh, made that show, I think that song made that show. I think that theme made that show. What do you guys think? I uh, actually wrote the, the introduction actually for the the soundtrack set that just came out. And one of the things I talked about in there was that, and, and this is why I think it's so successful. There are very few themes in the world, uh, musical themes or motifs that specifically literally say a word in the music. And, uh, John Williams' Superman score, when it goes, dun dun dun, Superman. You, you cannot hear the word Superman in that. Right. You know, I mean, it's like a three year old might not hear it, but any, if you have ever heard it and you've ever, and you know that it's in any way related to Superman, in that musical motif, he is clearly saying the word Superman. And I felt that what Fox and Gimbel did with this was that the words Wonder Woman are very clearly said in notes in the music. So I asked when I was working on the, the soundtrack set, I said, is there, is there a word for that? Is there, you know, what do, what do composers call that when they do that? And everyone kind of like looks at each other and they're all like, luck? <laughs> you know? There's not a word for it because it, it's so uncommon. Star Wars doesn't even have that. There's no motif in Star Wars that says the word Star Wars. Right. Star right. Trek doesn't have that. Indiana Jones doesn't have that. Jaws doesn't have that. They have, they have immediately memorable motifs and themes, but there is nothing in them that specifically says the name of the character in the same way. And the question then becomes, is the Batman TV theme as good at conveying that? And I, I say that it isn't. Um, I say that there's, there's very little about the Batman theme that specifically says Batman, except that they're saying Batman right there. 
but it's not well as far as batman goes the first thing that i hear is no 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 that's what i hear when someone says batman to me the old 60s show yeah that's what comes to mind when somebody says wonder woman to anybody what do you what do they normally what do they immediately do wonder woman exactly (laughs) ray do you do that um i think the important thing about this theme music and it it just it set up the show so perfectly every episode which was so common with 60s and 70s theme songs especially you got the whole background of the show and you didn't you could just sit down and watch any episode at any time and be completely caught up and ready to go right which uh i don't I, that doesn't really exist today no with uh the dc shows you have to know everything before you sit down and can just watch one episode of the series so this just put you right into the world and for me it was um it, like i was always enamored with the animated opening credits of bewitched when i saw the animated opening credits to wonder woman that grabbed me because it was already i was already so familiar with that and setting up this magical world and this uh fantasy world where anything could happen and the music was dri- it had a driving beat and it was just fun and um put you on a a, a a high note right away before the episode even began yeah yeah I absolutely agree I, I and 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 not and and this sort of segues very nicely into our, our next bit which is uh, the animation mm-hmm. uh, when I hear that music and I see that animation and Ray and I have talked about this when we first uh, saw this uh, that that opening yeah it affected us so very deeply and I, whenever I see it, I just, you know how sometimes you want to fast forward through the opening of a show? <laughs> I never do it with Wonder Woman. I have to see her leap off the comic book page. I, I, that was ingenious. Yeah. Number one, to sort of zoom in on, on the comic book and to see her do all of this stuff. And then suddenly she leaps forward and magically comes off the comic book into real life. I don't ever remember seeing anything like it before or since. It is so stirring to see that. And then Linda's energy and her her just warm, inviting energy with that glorious smile. Oh, that was just yeah. Like, you instantly felt like you were friends with this person. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Now, Andy, about the animation, tell us a little bit about the animation. Now, I know that uh, it's credited to, to Phil Norman, who did tons of animation for television it did uh, but but he also started to have a, assemble a team of of people that 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 did work for him right yeah uh, i was rather surprised when i found out the truth about the uh the opening credit animation because of course it's credited to phil norman and in actuality it's should be credited to phil norman's company um the uh about I don't know, 15 years or so ago, I uh, saw some pieces up for sale on eBay of original artwork for the opening credits. And through that, I was able to contact the son of the person who was, or or the person who was selling them and found out that he was the son of Chuck McKimson. And Chuck McKimson is an old Warner Brothers animator um, who started in the 1920s. He worked a lot on Bugs Bunny, Foghorn Leghorn. Um, he did some comics like Roy Rogers and things like that. Worked for Dell Comics. And, uh, you know, mostly lived his life doing animated work for Warner Brothers. And apparently at some point he joined uh, Phil Norman's studio. And the artwork that he produced was the artwork that was done for the opening credits of the Wonder Woman TV show. And what they did Ah. was they rotoscoped, they took photos of the actors and worked their way backwards, rotoscoping. So, for instance, they had Steve Trevor standing there sideways and then turning towards the camera. they, They had Lyle Wagner standing there sideways, turning towards the camera, walking forward, and, you know, so forth. So... They animated every, they they took that and rotoscoped the artwork, tracing over the photos so that they had an exact approximation in line art of Lyle Wagner doing exactly what he was doing in live action so that then they could meld the two together. But then they had to 
do all the scenes, all the action scenes had to be done separately. Those were not done rotoscope. Those were just done line art, drawing as, as you know, comic artists would. They were done originally in blue pencil and then inked on, on white animation paper. And then they would transfer that, that black line art onto cells, animation cells, and those would then be colored. So there's no colored version of the line art that isn't on a plastic sheet. And there's no uh, black and white version of a cell. There's, there's two things that exist. There is the, the penciled and inked line art. And then there is the colored and painted cells. And uh, given that Chuck McKimson's son sold me uh, about 150 pieces of art, almost every piece of artwork from the opening credits. What he told me was that his father was the actual artist of all those for Phil Norman Studios. So while there's nobody from Phil Norman Studios around to back this up, um, it's pretty clear that at least Charles McKimson was in possession of all of the artwork from the the animated uh, series and had told his family uh, that that he was the artist for it. Wow. And and you uh you now you have all of those pieces and you've wallpapered your bedroom with them, right? <laughs> no, I actually they're 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 very, very carefully stored. Um I've sold some off to few people every now and then. Um I gave one uh really gorgeous piece to Linda, um and then she signed she signed a piece to me as well. So that was kind of fun. Nice. Wonder Woman will continue in a moment. Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy surprises, Batman. It's really exciting. Greetings, citizens. Join me, your old bat chum, John S. Drew, on my journey to discover what it is I love about the classic 1966 Batman television series on the Batcave podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest host as we review the classic television series. There's a new episode every two weeks. Same bat time, same bat channel on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at thebatcavepodcast.com. Holy memoranda, folks. Make a note not to miss it. Good thinking, Robin. Now, there is one uh, last tidbit here about the animation that uh, for, for many Wonder Woman fans of the TV show, uh, this is going to blow your mind. Um, I am sitting. You've been teasing us about this. I'm sitting in my chair. <laughs> my hands are on the arms of the chair squeezing. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, a YouTuber uh, was very adamant uh, about a first cut of the Wonder Woman movie that we're reviewing uh, on this podcast. Uh, there were a couple of things that this YouTuber made claim to. He said, uh, he or she said that there is a more serious cut of the film. A lot of the gags, a lot of the comedy from the actors uh, was not uh, in uh, the original uh, version that that he or she saw. And then they also said that the title card for Wonder Woman uh, did not just say Wonder Woman. It said the new original Wonder Woman. And then the final thing that they said was that the uh, animation sequence when, where Wonder Woman jumps down from the building and lands and then she whips out her lasso uh, and tosses it was originally her landing and two guns coming into frame and shooting her, and she deflects the bullets uh, in animation. At first off, I was uh, very suspicious uh, about the more serious cut and about the animation uh, deflecting bullets. This YouTuber went so far uh, to prove his claim as to create a mock animation scene uh, with her deflecting her bullets. And uh, now I must say, first of all, it was really good. Whoever he got to do the animation, was it was really good. And But as a fan, I looked at it, and as someone in, in media, 
I, it was not good enough. The animation looked so different on YouTube than uh, yeah, the final product. I even weighed in as you know as an expert on the topic and said that that the animation scene here was clearly fake, and that according to the animation uh, cell numbers that I had assigned to the original art that that scene did not exist in any original art that I had. It was, it just, it, it was a little bit choppy. It looked like it was manufactured. So I went on to the, and I left a message and uh, uh, comments in on his, on the video. And I said, look, um, I think this is great. What you're trying to do If if something like this does exist, then the fans should rally together and try to get Warner brothers to release it. Or, uh, we should at least investigate or try to dig deeper. Uh, but I don't, think uh, this is uh real i think it's a mock-up a good one but i i i i just i just i don't believe it well my comment was deleted so i knew at that point that this fan didn't want to have a dialogue didn't want to really get into it he just wanted to say this is real and anyone that challenged them uh, he was going to ignore. Well, the only thing that I did believe was that the the main title card for the movie, uh, it did have the new original Wonder Woman over the cursive writing of Wonder Woman because I, back in the uh, 80s, had bought a 16 millimeter transfer onto VHS at one of those sci-fi conventions. Uh, we talked about that, Ray, on a previous show. And uh, it does have uh, the, the Wonder Woman logo with the, it says new original Wonder Woman. So I knew that was true. Now, getting back to uh, YouTube, about a year after this whole thing about the the lost, quote-unquote, lost uh, anim- uh, animation uh, sequence, another YouTuber says, I have gone into my stack of boxes and tapes. I have found a videotape that was uh, taped from an actual reel. It has the place markers, the countdown lead. It has the uh, place commercial here. And he he actually acknowledged, you have seen fakes around on YouTube. Here is the real one. Now, when he posted that, and when I watched that, I believed it. Because it was different than the other video that this other YouTuber had created. But it was so much more believable. It naturally flowed. Wonder Woman jumps down the... the uh, the, the guns fire at her, she deflects the bullets, and then she hauls off and swings at them with her fists, creating a burst of a star. Now, keep that in mind, because in the next frame, and I always wondered, why is there just this colorful star before Wonder Woman stops the car? Well, now we know. She hits the guys, and from that impact explodes this star, and that's what leads into the next frame of her stopping the car. And I was like, holy cow. This looks real. And then there was all much talk about it on Andy Mangle's uh, Facebook uh, Wonder Woman Collector's site. And I said to myself, um, because somebody, I think Andy actually said, look, uh, there's one way to uh, find out the truth about this. Um, Go to the archive, go to the the Paley Center in New York or Los Angeles. They have the, uh, the original Wonder Woman movie. And just and watch it. Put put it. Uh, find out once and for all. Put an end to all this speculation. And you know what? Earlier this year, my friend Max Mendoza, Maximilian Mendoza, who's a lo- I met him again on on the forums. Big Bionic fan. Uh, we met at at one of the uh, Lin- Lindsay Wagner um, uh, conventions. He came down to L.A. We made a day of it. We said, okay, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna go to the Paley Center and we're gonna uh, uh, go and watch that. And I first made sure they had the original airing of the Wonder Woman, the new original Wonder Woman movie. And I called my friend Gary Browning, who works at the Paley Center. He said, yeah, we have it. Come on down. We went, we sat down, we braced ourselves, and we watched the animated sequence. This time, rich, beautiful, and there it was, in all its glory. Wonder Woman comes down, guns start firing at her, she deflects them, and then she knocks them out. And we were just awestruck. We were we were speechless. And it was only on this episode? It was only on the first airing of the new original Wonder Woman. Okay. Because they re-aired it again to get people prepped for the specials that would that would come out the following year in 76. Yeah. I'm speculating that they changed it because, yes, it was a primetime uh, movie, but now if it was going to go into series, they're, they're still thinking, okay, it's animation, a lot of kids are going to be watching. Do we re- really want to have animated guns shooting at Wonder Woman? Yeah. But 
I tell you right here, right now, for some of you, it's probably the first time you've heard of it. There is a lost animated opening title sequence to Wonder Woman where she is shot at with a pistol and a machine gun. And she deflects the bullets. I was very thankful to uh, Alex Viaggio, uh, the YouTuber who dug and found that old his old VHS tape that had that uh, animated sequence because I would have gone thinking that it's a lie, it's a fabrication, it's somebody just... It's the wrong thing to do. What the right thing would have been to say is, listen, this is the way I remember it. I've created this mock-up. Here's how I remember it. If it jogs your memory then let's get together, let's try and yeah. dig and find out if this is the truth. Yeah, That's what I would have appreciated, but um, that's not what happened. If you watch the animated sequence of Wonder Woman on your DVD or on streaming, you will see the two guns pointed at Wonder Woman. On the left side of the, of the comic book screen, on the bottom on the right, you'll see the guns. They're there. They've always been there. They're there right now on every first season episode of Wonder Woman. It's only when we zoom in and she jumps down from the building, the scene is taken out. So a lot of fans might look at that and go, wait a minute, there there are some guns being pointed at Wonder Woman in this one panel. Is it still on YouTube? Yeah, it is It is still on YouTube. I will send you the link. We'll have it in our show notes. You can take a look at it. I'm also going to post a video that I took at the Paley Center of the screen <laughs> so you can see it as uh, as we saw it. I call I say to every Wonder Woman fan, let's let's get on the horn to Warner Brothers. Let's get them to release if they come out with a Blu-ray and and they should because it's already streaming in HD. But if they come out with a Blu-ray of the TV series, we should petition them to release the real opening of that movie. That would be fantastic. And, and I think it's you know it's right. And it would make uh the purchase worthwhile. Since the DVDs have been so available. Absolutely. New extras, restore the cutscenes from the DVD sets, restore the opening credits, restore the intros to season two. They could even make a big lost opening. Yeah, exactly. Big selling point. Yeah. Well, they have, they have no reason not to release something more because the HD versions that are out on, uh, on iTunes and on Amazon are actually widescreen. And they actually have more footage on the sides than are in the cropped versions that are on television. Um, yeah. Well, now some well, of that, much to their detriment, yeah, and some, some, of <laughs> some of that footage means you get to see guys standing on ladders holding Klieg lights because it, it was meant to be. And cropped. you do. It was meant to be cropped, but some of it also shows you that there was one black Amazon on Paradise Island, you know, who was like right. in the crowd right. off in the corner cropped on your television, but she's there. Some of that is actually there. So they could put out a remastered HD version of the show, which they've already done the remastered HD on it. They could do that and and replace these, these credits. And I got to say, it's good detective work on your part, Paul. Um, when, when you, even when you told me that you had proved it to be true, I was still skeptical until you showed me the video. And then if you were, yeah, that goes, well, I mean, that goes back to you, Andy, uh, on, on your, I mean, that's, there was a, there was a, I guess, a, a, a several weeks discussion on your Facebook Wonder Woman Collectors right. uh, Facebook page about this. And I remember you saying, listen, go to the Paley Center in New York or LA. Right. Someone just go and watch it. We can, we can, we can put an end to this right now. Right. And that's what I did. <laughs> right, right, right. I never would have known. The point, the point is I never would have known. That it existed at, at the Paley Center had had I not been reading the discussion on your forum. Well, I'm I'm glad I'm glad to uh you know to help you with so many of your firsts, Paul. I feel like a <laughs> a, a counselor. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andy, for making it. Yeah, and and just uh, uh again about the, uh, the the streaming video, Wonder Woman, like so many shows, were shot in what's called open mat, meaning that. A lot more of this, of this, of the, of the real estate of the screen was shot. And then they would crop it, as Andy said, for television, because that was the medium that it was going to. And they knew they were going to crop it. So that's why you see lights on the far edges of the left and right. Sometimes you see a guy standing there. If you watch, <laughs> I have, I've made some screen captures of this. If you watch one of my favorite episodes of second season, The Man Who Made Volcanoes, as, as Wonder Woman, at the very end, she jumps up to stand in front of that laser beam and she jumps down. In the widescreen version, you see a guy holding the ladder that she's jumping <laughs> down from and he's just sitting there looking at her like, hey, Linda, how you doing? 
<laughs> and it is so disorienting to see. I'll go one step further. I would if if Warner Brothers is going to release it on Blu-ray, they can digitally remove the artifacts out of the size of those screens. Yeah. I have to say that I'm a purist. Yeah. If they do release it in Blu-ray... Which I don't know what the hell they're waiting for. Look, I would compromise. Give us both. Give us a widescreen and give us the actual television frame the way it was meant to be because... Uh, it's just, you know, it's the way it was meant to be. All right, anyway, the last is, I just want to make one comment about the costume by Don Feld. Um, uh, uh, fantastic. I just, I just thought it was true to the comic, so much so that they had the skirt, and then, of course, they discarded it. Should it feel cumbersome? When it first appears, wow. Yeah. That's Wonder Woman. Yeah. Holy cow. So, uh, uh, thank you to, to, to Don Feld to, to really bring, bringing that to life. And I believe this is the only episode that Linda actually wears this version of the costume. Correct. Yeah. She, uh, she, and then it's, we, it's seen on Fausta in, uh, Fausta, obviously. And well, no, it's also seen in $2 bills and, um, judgment from outer space. She wears a different skirt. It's a sort of a slit, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of like a slit up the side, Correct. and it's a different star pattern. Yep. I'm talking about this actual bodice and uh, Correct. shorts. Yes. Correct. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Now we are get. Let's get into the new original Wonder Woman. Uh, it's oh my god! It's so it's it's so great. Uh, Andy has uh, supplied the script uh, from his uh, script archive, and just reading the script, it was a fun read. Oh my gosh! It is uh, because. Stanley Ralph Ross really wrote a fun script. It was. It really is really true to the comic book uh, origin of this character. Um, uh, and yes, he made changes where changes needed to be made, but for the most part, it is. It's all there, man. It's. It's. It's great. Now the script uh, that we were looking at. It's a ninety-four page final shooting script, fourth revision, uh, and it was completed. This one that the one that we were referencing on this show. Uh, on January 3rd, 1975. Let me break in just for a second here because um, I, what I sent you was the, the script that had the director's notes on it. Yes. Um, oh, great, great director's the, notes. But there is an actual fifth version final shooting script, which is dated March 4th, 1975. So oh. what we know from the notes that I have... Um, that the 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 final shooting script was March fourth, nineteen seventy five. Uh, they were talking about what further stories to develop in some files that I have from April twenty third, and then it was sh first shown to a test audience on May thirteenth, nineteen seventy five. When did they actually film it? Sometime between March fourth, nineteen seventy five, and May thirteenth, nineteen seventy five. So I, I'm guessing. Given the other notes that I that I saw here um, from April twenty third, where they talk about that uh, Cloris Leachman was attached to a series, so she couldn't return, and how they're talking about her costume and things like that, um, I'm guessing that it was be actually between March fourth and April twenty third was when they filmed. Okay, but I don't I don't have any of the shooting documents handy. I have them somewhere in storage, but. Uh, so we can establish when this was actually shot, which would have been in March and April of 1975. That's fantastic. And it definitely puts it in perspective. So Linda would have been 23. Yeah. Wow. 23. I mean, if, if, if you think about that, what that, what that means to, to Hollywood these days, and when you think about kids these days, that, that's, she's barely out of college. She's, she was very young, and she did not look. She didn't look old, no. but she she looked timeless. Yeah, she, she looked immortal. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, when I was talking with uh, Neil S. Bulk, who was the producer of the three uh, CD uh, La La Land uh, collection TV soundtrack, uh, he told me that the recording for the main title theme, Charles Fox's recording of that, uh, was in April of '75, uh, and. Uh, again, it just puts dates put things in perspective. So they were shooting in March, they recorded the theme in April, uh, and then they they had all that time to put it all together for November. I, I just it just really creates a a, a linear uh, memory uh, of of how these things come together. It also tells you how quickly the project came about 
based on the Kathy Lee Crosby uh, property because that aired first in March 20, March 12th of 1974. And then it was repeated again on August 21st of 1974. Uh, and, you know, and they talk about, well, the ratings weren't great, but then they repeated it. How good were they? So the decision was made post August 21st, 1974. And I would say pre-January based, based on the script dates that I've got pre-January we're, we're talking uh, the very first script I've got is from January third, and that's the f- that's a fourth revision script. Yeah, that's the one uh, you, you you sent me, and that used to be available for sale online. I don't know if it still is. Yeah, yeah. So that is that's so January third is is that's the fourth revision, meaning he's already worked on it for at least two months. Right. So <laughs> right, so, right. Yeah. So so between August twenty first and we'll say November first was when they made the decision to. And, and did all the casting and made the decision not to go with Kathy Lee again and made the decision to, to develop the new series or develop the new pilot. Amazing. All right, let's get into the cast here. Usually I talk about what they've done and where they've been and, and how great they are. But this cast is almost so so recognizable. I mean, you got people like, well, let's go to John Randolph as General Blankenship. Uh, you see that guy everywhere. You, uh, he's been in everything and 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 anything and everything. You see John Randolph. He was the first um, first uh, uh, Frank Costanza. Really? Seinfeld. Yes, he was. I had no, I had no idea. Yes, he was. I couldn't. Be- I was watching the DVD set, and he appeared. He was the first, or he's a, a special feature. They show they have uh, his his episode where he plays Frank Costanza, and then they reshot it with um, Jerry Stiller. Oh, when Jerry man. Stiller was cast in the role. Oh man! Yeah. Well, there you go. And a little, uh, 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 I'll, I call these script sidebars, and we'll do that uh, uh, throughout the throughout the show. When we meet General Blankenship, he is given a first name, and it is not Philip. His first name is, in fact, Lyle. <laughs> <laughs> He's the brother of General Philip Blankenship. It's amazing. They probably, I don't know, uh, it's, it must have been something, you know, Stanley throwing that in there. It's its very funny. General Lyle Blankenship. Uh, red Buttons, the immortal Red Buttons, come on, as as Ashley Norman, who is really Karl Hoff. Linda Carter, if you listen to her commentaries, she has lots of fond memories of working with, with Red Buttons, and he seems like he'd be st- yeah, fun to work yeah. with also. Right. Um, uh, Stella Stevens, <laughs> Stella Stevens, come on, as as Marcia, who is also referred to uh, in the in the movie as Agent M. A lot of people miss that, but Von Blasco says we need to contact Agent M to make sure we get the duplicate plans of uh, the Norden bomb site. Um, I'm thinking that that the M stood for Mistress of Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> But they didn't want to call her Agent M-O-K-F-U, so so they said, Agent Mistress of Kung Fu, we'll just shorten it to Agent M. But her name's Marsha. Oh, I guess that works too. Yeah, exactly. Um, but she does. She does in the script get a last name. Her name is Marsha Green. Green with with three E's. Uh, so that's a little tidbit. Um, quick little story about uh, Stella Stevens and Red Buttons <laughs> before the new original Wonder Woman. You might have seen Stella Stevens and Red Buttons in. The Poseidon Adventure, one of my favorite Irwin uh, Allen disaster movies. Also starring in that is Roddy McDowell. So you have three actors that went on to do Wonder Woman. Uh, and I actually, I met Stella Stevens at a screening uh, in uh, Hollywood uh, of The Poseidon Adventure at the Egyptian Theater. And uh, there's a great, I'll post it on the uh, on the notes, uh, picture she took with me. She was so, she's such a sweet, sweet woman. And I, I, I uh, asked her a question when I was talking with her. I said, now, you and Linda Carter... Uh, when you did the big fight scene at the end of uh, the Wonder Woman movie, that was all you. Uh, that was that was you, really you and Linda Carter, right? And she turned to me, and with a wink, she said, "Yeah, sure, kid." <laughs> uh, so, uh, Stella Stevens, great, uh, uh, just great in this movie. Eric Braden as Drangle, the uh, captain who shoots uh, Steve Trevor uh, in the and has the dog fight with him. Uh, of course, everybody knows Eric Braden uh, gone on to uh, become. Victor Newman on The Young and the Restless. He's still Victor Newman yeah. on The Young and the Restless. My husband watches that show every single day, and I I <laughs> complain constantly about hearing the name Newman Enterprises every day at least 73 times. 
now at least, now that you've made that connection for me and reminded me, at least I'll have this small moment where I can turn to him and say every single day, 73 times, did you know he was in Wonder Woman? (laughs) There you go. You're going to get him back. It will annoy him as much as me hearing Newman Enterprises, you know, 73 times will. (laughs) Severn Darden. I know he's done a lot of great stuff. Uh, me and and Ray and I'm sure uh, Andy all know him as uh, as um, Aploy. Aploy, yes. thank you, Ray. You're welcome. Thank you, Aploy, the the alien commander in uh, the Secret of Bigfoot and the Six Million Dollar Man and uh, the Return of Bigfoot. There was a lot of crossover between the two shows. It's amazing nobody ever crossed them over. <laughs> oh wait, I did. Oh! <laughs> Fanny Flag. Now, we all know Fanny Flagg, uh, she went on to write... Fried Green Tomatoes. Fried Green Tomatoes. <laughs> Fried Green Tomatoes, exactly. Um, Henry Gibson and Kenneth Mars. Um, uh, the, it's, it's, it's interesting that they're paired here together in this because I've always imagined them together uh, in comedy. Were they not? I know... You know, he he was mostly known at that point. I mean, his biggest role at that point it was Young Frankenstein. Yes. Uh, in 1974. He was, a, he was genius in this episode. He had been known a lot. He did a lot of Love American style. and But his most comic book credit to that point had been as one of the lead characters in the TV movie version of It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Oh. So, so he actually had previously played a comic book character max and then he was on lois and clark yeah as a villain. yeah yeah it's yes. it's pretty bizarre um can i real quickly i i want to share my kenneth mars story which is which is kenneth mars by proxy i go to a once a month event called piano bar late night piano bar and it's at artist repertory theater here in portland oregon where i live it is put on by one of our most prestigious theater companies. It's a, They have uh, one of the top pianists in the area come in. We'll play music for anybody who brings in music. And so you, you bring in music and you step up to the mic. And it's kind of, it's kind of a cross between open mic, cabaret, and, um, and a concert. Because the amount of, of actual theater people, real strong theater people and actors and actresses who are visiting town and so forth is pretty strong. It's sponsored by Susanna Mars, and I had known of her for years. I had a couple albums by her. She sings a lot with the Gay Men's Chorus up here, and I had seen her in shows. And the first time I went to Piano Bar, I was terrified. I wasn't going to be good enough. And, And I sang, and she was very constructive and very, very complimentary and so forth. And the second time... I went there, I was saying to somebody how much I liked her, and and they started talking about her, and they said something about her dad being an actor. And suddenly, the light bulbs went off. It clicked. Because <laughs> she's very pretty, but there is a familial resemblance between Susanna Mars and her father, Kenneth Mars. So I go, like, swanning over to Susanna, and I says, is your dad Kenneth Mars? And she looks at me with like shock on her face and she goes, yes. And I said, oh my God, he was in the Wonder Woman pilot. <laughs> I said, he's, he's the reason Wonder Woman came to be. Oh. <laughs> you, you, you fanboyed all over. And, uh. and, and she looked at me like I was a little bit of a crazy person. But, <laughs> a little bit. Um, but she was, uh, she, so she sat and talked with me about it for a little while. And it turns out she had been a little girl at the time. And uh, she remembered going on the Wonder Woman set. Oh, and, wow. And filming the scene where he fights Wonder Woman in the cockpit of the plane. Oh, she, man. She was there that day and remembers filming that scene and how she got to meet Linda and how pretty Linda was and, you know, so forth. Unbelievable. And, so yeah, so so I love hearing stories like that. I I I regularly get to sing with the daughter of the guy who played the Nazi that created Wonder Woman. Well, you you have to share <laughs> that with us at some time. Who was in something with Kevin Bacon, I'm certain. <laughs> Um, and last but not least, of course, is Cloris Leachman, with which uh, I guess uh, she's won the most uh, Emmy Awards, uh, <laughs> uh, more than anyone else. And Cloris Leachman, man, great, great comedian. 
Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, yes. But I remember her from the Facts of Life when she took over for Charlotte Ray, and uh, I love that. I and and that, and then she went on to do what the uh, the Malcolm, not the Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, yeah, she, she was played, the grandmother on there, wasn't she? Was she okay? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, when I was doing reality TV in Hollywood, we were developing a show on Cloris Leachman, just following her around and seeing her just doing or living her daily life. She's bananas. Oh my God. She's crazy. And she agreed to that? Oh yeah. She's a crazy person. She is, she is good. Yeah. She is so nuts, (laughs) Uh, but it never came to fruition. So, uh, (laughs) she strikes me as like almost the Gary Busey of female actresses, except that she's, she's fun. She doesn't make you want to go hide in a bulletproof chamber. This is true. Um, I will say, uh, before we, get to crew is that eric braden and henry gibson uh will return uh to wonder woman uh henry gibson will come back and play uh the marion mariposa <laughs> such an over-the-top character and of course eric braden will will uh, play a sinister character in skateboard whiz um <laughs> that episode <laughs> I hate that episode. The first time Beverly Leslie came on Will and Grace, the actor who Leslie Jordan, who plays Beverly Leslie on Will and Grace, came on screen. I thought, did they just clone Henry Gibson because they are so much alike, not just in stature, but in in their their supreme effeteness that is, you know, like so so far beyond any uh, Paul Lind looks stone cold butch compared to the two of them and 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 I thought I thought they have got to be sisters in real life because they could not be any closer to each other so if they ever do a Linda Carter remake they've got to get Leslie uh, uh, Beverly Leslie, the guy who plays Beverly Leslie, to do. Uh... Well, there you go. Yeah, Henry Gibson. He's just uh, what a character, man. He's just uh, way over the top. Uh, the crew, of course, produced by Douglas S. Kramer, who went on to executive produce the series. Uh, it was photographed by Dennis Dezel, and of course, based on Charles Moulton, who we know as uh, William Moulton Marston. Uh, written and developed by Stanley Ralph Ross, and directed by Leonard Horn. All right, let's get into it. The new original Wonder Woman. Uh, and and I, I will say this about the script, uh, uh, Stanley Ralph Ross. In the second page of his script, he says, he writes a little note to the producers regarding the opening titles. He says, in animation, segueing into live action, the main titles... we read this together? The main titles... Will leave no doubt... In anyone's mind... That they are about to be... Dazzled... By the new... Original... Wonder, Wonder Woman... Woman. And that's where we'll end part one. Stay tuned for part two as Ray and I, along with our special guest Andy Mangles, take a deep dive into the actual movie itself. That's coming soon. Some of the music heard in this podcast is from the La La Land Records exquisite limited edition Wonder Woman TV soundtrack produced by Neil S. Bulk. You can order yours at LaLaLandRecords.com. You also heard a clip of Charles Fox performing his Wonder Woman theme on piano. That's from his three-hour interview with the Archive of American Television, and you can hear that at metvlegends.org. It's great. As always, links to these sites and more can be found in our show notes at satintights.com. For Ray Caspio, I'm Paul K. Bisson. Until part two, stay wonderful. Oh,